You're listening to the Inside Out Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production and powered by Midwest Sports. The purpose of this series is to determine the best American male tennis player at any given point in the open era. To signify which American male sat on top of the American men's tennis world, we award them the hypothetical championship belt. Here's the criteria I used in judging each of these players. Grand Slam titles, year-end rankings, popularity amongst fans, Davis Cup success, success on the American Junior Tour, and last but not least, head-to-head records. Our series picks up in 1974. Though Nixon may have resigned from office in disgrace, things were surely looking up for American tennis players. Our next recipient of the belt won three Grand Slams in that 1974 season and established his presence as the dominant American on tour. Part 2. Jimmy Connors vs. John McEnroe. The immovable object meets the unstoppable force. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply was born in September of 1952, the younger of Gloria and Big Jim Connors' two children. Reared in East St. Louis, Illinois, few started farther from the fringe of the tennis world. As a two-time Orange Bowl champion, winner of the Boys 16's Kalamazoo title, and winner of an NCAA singles title, Jimmy Connors was hardly an unknown to American tennis fans. Jimmy was from a really rough tough neighborhood. I mean, East St. Louis, Illinois, probably one of the most blue-collar areas in the country. In a town where tennis was a ticket less to success than ridicule, Jimmy was groomed for the court not by Big Jim, but by the unlikely duo of his mother and grandmother. Jimmy Connors began unlacing the staid confines of professional tennis in 1972 when, at 19, he won the first of a record 109 tournament titles. His assault left the game's old guard gasping. Early in his career, Connors' biggest opponent was not another American, but rather himself. Connors refused to join the newly formed ATP Players Union and played in only five of the 12 Grand Slams held from 1970 to 1972 due to his conflicts with the group. He refused to join other tour players bent on establishing a union. The idea that he would uh, second um, his own interests or concerns to that of the group just never occurred to him. I liked my independence. I didn't want to join any groups, especially the, the way I thought they were being run at the time. 
When a majority of the top players, led by Arthur Ashe, boycotted Wimbledon in 1973, Connors was conspicuous by his presence on the revered grass courts. Arthur Ashe saw the ATP as representing all of his colleagues. Connors comes along and says, well, I want a little personal attention. I think this is a one-on-one -on -one game, and I think you're nuts, Arthur. I had to voice my opinion. Nobody else was fighting my battles for me. And what I brought to the game certainly was what the game didn't expect. The biggest win of Connors' early career came in the 1973 U.S. Grand Prix Pro Singles Final, where he defeated Arthur Ashe 6-3-4-6-6-4-3-6-6-2. The ATP Tour website lists the career head-to-head -head between the two as 5-2 to Jimmy Connors though the majority of their meetings occurred well past Ash's prime. To Ash's credit, however, he did defeat Connors in the 1975 Wimbledon final, the two's only meeting in a Grand Slam championship. After winning the U.S. Pro Singles title in 1973, Connors kicked off 74 with his first Grand Slam victory, the Australian Open. But he reserved his strongest statements for later in the year beating the venerable Ken Rosewall in the finals at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. By 1974, though, Connors was the indisputable owner of the belt. His 1974 season was as smooth as his patented racket-strumming celebration. He won all three of the slams in which he participated, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Connors stubbornly did not play the French Open from 1974 to 1978 and stopped competing in Australia after 1975. However, in the 12 Grand Slams he competed in from 1974 to 1978, he won five titles and made six other finals. His lone non-finals result, a quarterfinal appearance at Wimbledon in 1976. He thrived on chaos and gamesmanship. One moment he was a profane lout, appalling you with his crudeness. And the next he was enthralling you with his grunting, two-fisted passion. James Scott Connors once ran off a stretch of being number one in the world for 159 straight weeks. He called what he played guts tennis, and each match felt like a back alley brawl. Jimmy Connors first achieved the number one ranking in July of 1974 and ended the year inside of the top 10, a record 16 years in a row. Connors ended his career with the most titles, most matches won, and most matches played by any man in the open era. And these records, though currently under assault by the big three, continue to stand to this day. From 1974 to 1978, as Connors dominated the tour, he also won over the hearts of American tennis fans everywhere. He made five straight U.S. Open finals and ended each season number one in the rankings. Connors also boasted a 17-4 record against American rival Vitis Gerolaitis, going 4-1 against him in tour finals and 2-0 at Grand Slam events. Connors claimed eight career singles Grand Slams and more match victories than any male in history. He won any way he could, often employing a volatile mix of tactics that mirrored the times. There was no worse guy ever to be on the other side of the net from. You are an abortion! You are an abortion! Do you know that? Listen, kiss me first before you do anything to me next time. Just kiss me. He was a great player but he was the most degrading person to people on the court and just 
miserable to be on the court with. Are you again? Talking back to umpires and berating linesmen is very, very unusual to see it and uncalled for. I think it was a way of putting off an opponent because he used to play very, very well under the turmoil. Off the court, Connors formed half of America's first family of tennis, dating American women's tennis sensation Chris Everett. Connors ruled professional tennis with all the grace of a hired gun. Then, in the dawn of his reign, the arrogant king fell in love with America's sweetheart. Chris was his absolute paragon of virtue. And to see her fall into the clutches of this, you know, this Jimmy Connors, this brash, vulgar, unpopular kind of person, I think really made people kind of distraught. Off the court, there was a different side to him that I fell in love with when I was 17, 18 years old. And he was very attentive and he was very caring. I remember, I guess it was one year, they went to South Africa and played in a tournament and went and got their rings at some diamond mine. The two were a couple when they captured titles at the 1974 Wimbledon and accomplished the media called the Lovebird Double. The depths of their love glittered in the national spotlight when Everett, proudly wearing a diamond engagement ring, became queen to her fiancé's kingship at Wimbledon. It was a fairy tale that we both won that year. We'd sit there at 9.30 at night and watch the matches on TV and talk about our tennis. The Wimbledon ball the unusual circumstance, probably the only time it's ever happened in history, of two people engaged to be married dancing the first dance. The two winners danced together, and the song was The Girl That I Marry. You know, the Wimbledon committee picked that out. We had an awful lot of fun, there's no doubt about it. You always look back at your first love with a gleam in your eye. If they had stayed together, it would have been the sports romance, the sports marriage of the century. Whether it was his on-court antics, his unbreakable will, or his numerous match victories, American tennis fans eventually fell in love with Jimmy Connors. Those fans would remain loyal to him for the rest of his career. In fact, when a 39-year-old Connors made a run to the 1991 U.S. Open semifinals, it was him, and not Americans Jim Courier or Aaron Crickstein, for whom the New York crowd screamed. Perhaps Connors' greatest Open performance was one he didn't win. At 39, he was ranked 174th on the ATP computer when he reached the semifinals as a wild card entry. That was the, the most thrilling 11 days of my whole career because that brought out what I had been trying to bring out of, of the people in the stands my whole life. If I would have never touched a racket the rest of my life after that, it would have been just fine. Enter the immovable object, John McEnroe. Though Connors dominated American tennis through most of the 1970s, a new name began to emerge in 1977. A young prodigy out of New York by the name of John McEnroe quickly made a name for himself. At the 77 French Open, an 18-year-old McEnroe captured both the mixed doubles and the boys' singles title. Following a brief stint at Stanford, where he won the 1978 NCAA team and singles title, McEnroe turned pro. He reached number one in the world by March of 1980 and soon partnered with Connors on the 1981 U.S. Davis Cup championship team. And with that, a rivalry was formed. McEnroe and Connors, he pretty much knew that they weren't going to be disappointed from the time the first ball was struck. 
like watching a V monster movie. You couldn't figure out, you know, which one was the, the more sympathetic monster from match to match, because they were both monsters. Well, don't get smart with me, Puppy Breath. Green. I'd like to have a referee. I'd like the referee. I'm not playing on until you get the referee. Jimmy invited the crowd in. Like, come here, help me beat this guy. He wanted everybody to experience what he was going through, whereas John's whole thing was, that audience, everybody shut up and just let me go play and, and just shut up. And McEnroe was the serve in Bali and Connors was the return of serve. So in that sense, they were different. It's just that they were so much alike temperamentally. They were actually two tennis players that you could see waiting for each other outside and getting into a fight. Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe faced off 34 times from 1977 to 1991. Their rivalry remains one of, if not the most, contentious in the history of the sport. We did have a few problems while we were playing on the court, and attitude from him, attitude from me, so which you know created more butting heads and, and more intensity. We didn't like each other off the court either. In the heat of the battle, you feel like you're going to walk up the court and you're going to fight. You know, as simple as that. The beauty of McEnroe and Connors is they could come out here and play on my court here. Within a couple of games, they'd be yelling at each other. The tennis was the most important thing, and we just happened to, as Borg and I did, bring out the best in each other tennis-wise also. Anything else you got, should have been happy about that. <laughs> the rivalry reached its zenith during a 1982 exhibition match in Illinois when Connors jumped over the net to confront McEnroe. McEnroe decisively swatted Connor's finger away, making it one of the few altercations with actual physical contact in tennis history. Connors may have won the match, but McEnroe's swat symbolized his standing as the new owner of the belt. He went 14-5 against Connors after 1982. Although Connors won their 1982 Wimbledon Finals matchup, McEnroe won their 1984 Wimbledon encounter in straight sets and finished 20-14 and 14 against Connors for his career. Neither Jimmy Connors nor John McEnroe shied away from confrontation, and their affinity for drama brought tennis to a new level of popularity unmatched in this country to this day. Before we wrap today's episode, I have to give another huge shout out to Blue Claw Music and our friend Thomas Ackley for their song, America the Beautiful Hip Hop Track Remix, which you're hearing as the score for this belt series. You can find more of their work on YouTube. Also have to give a big thank you to our friends at ESPN for their extensive collections of sound bites, which you heard throughout this podcast. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Didn't Jimmy Connors go on to have a really successful 1980s? The answer to that question is yes. He maintained a top 10 ranking through the 1989 season, and that accomplishment deserves plenty of credit. Still, when you look back at it, the 1980s in American men's tennis belonged to one man. That man was John McEnroe, and he's the subject of our next episode of The Belt. <laughs>